pray together, shall we? Father, it is in Jesus' name that we stand before you. We never want to be embarrassed or ashamed of the name of Christ or your gospel. And today, as we open our Bibles and as we consider this important topic and subject that has highly impacted our country and our families and our cities, would you please just help us to be convinced of your word, careful with our words, loving in our hearts. Thank you for the cross and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And even speaking on behalf of our nation, Lord, we would pray that you would be merciful to us. The bloodbath that has been in our streets because of abortion is shameful. We would ask that you would forgive us as a nation. I pray that you would turn the hearts of our leaders and that there would be an end to this atrocity. Help us as a church to stand courageously and yet calmly and lovingly. Give clarity now as we speak in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. And I have to tell you that it is with a little bit of a, a shame on me uh, that I say that this past Friday is the first time I ever attended uh, the March for Life in Washington, D.C. And uh, it was so encouraging. I just really enjoyed it. Some of you who've been might know how that feels. I don't know how many people were there. This is a, a picture of a, a big part of our group. We had more families than that that were there from Fellowship Bible Church. I think around 50 people total from Fellowship. And uh, we just had a great day together. The Lord blessed us with a wonderful day weather-wise. And as far as the number of people total at the march, I, I have no idea. It was massive. Uh, it was the, in the hundreds of thousands of people. I am sure that it is indeed the most overlooked event in the news of the week and of the year. Uh, I was a bit distressed when I got home and, and I, I looked on my phone at uh, some of the main media outlets and I saw absolutely no coverage. Just remarkable. I mean, Constitution Avenue and the mall, it was packed with people. And I think partly because of the good weather, but partly the hearts of people and the momentum on this particular topic, it was just incredible, the number of people. I met a group of high school young people from Kansas. They had uh, ridden on a bus for 24 hours and gotten off the bus and been a part of the march. They were going to spend the night there. And then on yesterday, they were going to get back on their bus and ride 24 hours back. I met uh, a group of four or five uh, college students from Moody Bible Institute. They were just wonderful young people. We had a great conversation. I met two sisters from Texas um, who were on a kind of a sister's trip and they wanted to include the march and one of them had a homemade poster of their granddaughter who had been born at 24 weeks at about 20 ounces and uh, she was now three years old and she had pictures and it just stirred your heart and touched your heart. Just a delightful, beautiful, sharp completely whole and healthy three-year-old granddaughter in her grandmother's arms in the pictures. And she wanted to be there to stand against the sin of abortion in our country. I want to say a couple things as I begin our message time today. I have made a practice uh, for 22 years to mark this occasion and for us to address this most serious topic it's an emotional topic. It's a difficult topic. 
In some ways, it makes you wonder why we would ever have to even consider this. But 45 years ago, our Supreme Court took uh, it upon themselves to legalize this great atrocity of giving women the right to abort babies before, they were abor before they're born. I was thinking of the conflicting logic with which we live in our country. We were on Constitution Avenue, and I mean, it was just packed with masses of people. And for hours we were there, and I looked up in the clear blue sky, and somebody said, look, there's an eagle. And actually there were two eagles high above us, above the Capitol area there, soaring in the sky, and they were beautiful and striking against the blue sky backdrop. And I thought to myself, here we are, marching on behalf of unborn human babies and those eagles up there in the sky who are not created in the image of God like people have more protection for their unborn than we do for ours. Something is wrong with that kind of logic. I want you to know that I want to be very careful in my approach today. Um, I recognize that in our three services today there must be those who have made decisions in the past that they deeply regret. You can't undo the past. You can only run to the cross. Many have, and there the blood of Christ cleanses us from, say it, all sin. And there's been healing, and you look forward to the day when you're going to be in heaven with all of your children. And God will somehow, I think, connect the dots there. I really believe that. Uh, it is possible that someone might be unconvinced. You might think that this is something that is proper and right and that women should have a right to do this. And so I will unashamedly say that I hope to convince you otherwise today. In fact, it's easy for us to sometimes think that there's not very many people that still hold to a pro-life position. You kind of feel the momentum of our world in, in our educational systems, in our political world. Um, Pro-lifers are marginalized. They're one of the largest events that will, or the largest event held in Washington this year, absolutely ignored by the media and other much smaller events given much greater splash. And you think to yourself, is there something wrong with me that I have this position? And I want to tell you today, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you if you are pro-life. In fact, you have no other choice. And I want in our message today to call to our young people to listen. If you're in the audience today and you're a younger person of a younger generation, it is very much on my heart and mind that we pass on truth to the next generation. And what I want to do today as you position your Bible and your notes is I, I want you, without apology, I want you to understand that biblically and logically and even medically, we have tremendous footing on our pro-life position. In fact, I want to show you with just a sampling of biblical and logical argument that there is no other choice other than the pro-life choice. There is absolutely no other choice. Particularly for Bible-believing, born-again Christians, there is no other choice than to be pro-life. Let's begin by turning in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, please. And what I want to show you is I want to show you that by the very terminology of the Bible, the biblical terminology, we have evidence, we have clear evidence as to the sanctity of the life, lives of the unborn. 
We want to begin by looking in Luke chapter 1. It's a fairly familiar passage. It is uh, the, uh, the backdrop to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And his mother Mary is, is having an encounter with her cousin, who's an older woman, who has had a most remarkable pregnancy in her old age. And she is now pregnant with John the Baptist. Her name is Elizabeth, and Elizabeth and Mary are cousins, and, and they have come together, and Elizabeth is greeting Mary when they first see each other. That's Luke chapter 1, uh, and look at verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. They then exchange, uh, the, she goes on and exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women... Elizabeth says this to Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So she's humbled, she recognizes that Mary is going to give birth to Messiah, but I want to point out that her terminology is very specific, and in verse 41, Elizabeth, upon hearing the greeting of Mary's voice, says that the baby, she uses the word baby, it leaped within her womb. It moved. Now turn to Luke chapter 2, and this is when the shepherds arrive at the manger. The angels come and tell the shepherds, go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has taken place, and there you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, and so they go. You know this story very well, Luke chapter 2, and look at verse 16. And when they, the shepherds, went with haste, and they went with haste, the shepherds did, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now here's what I want to make clear to you. In the Greek Testament, which the New Testament was originally written in the common language of the day called Koine Greek. In the Greek, a word, the Greek word for baby is transliterated in our alphabet as B-R-E-P-H-O-S. Briefos or Briefos. Nobody really knows how to pronounce the Koine Greek language. It's a dead language. They don't know exactly how they pronounced it. This word means baby or infant. And what I want to point out to you is that when Elizabeth greeted Mary... John the Baptist was in the womb and Jesus was in the manger and the exact same word is used for both of them, baby or infant. The Bible never calls an unborn baby a fetus, a lump of tissue, and it's not an inanimate object. It is always in the terminology of scripture, the exact same language before birth as after birth. Now that didn't sound right to me. It's the first time I've said that today following birth. It's always the same language when it's unborn as as soon as it is born. All right? And the word is baby or infant. Now, we even have an example of this in the Old Testament. We, we're not going to take time to turn there, but let me just tell you, um, it's Jacob and Esau, when they were in Rebekah's womb, um, they stirred and they were wrestling, they were moving, and it speaks about the children or sons in her womb. In the Hebrew, the word is translated B-E-N, it equals son. 
Now, the Old Testament was originally written mostly in Hebrew. When you translate that into English, it's B-E-N. It's a word that we would translate in English to mean son. If you make it plural, it's banum. It equals children, which is the plural of the singular ben for son. You need to know that in the Hebrew, that word ben is the ordinary word used more than 4,900 times in the Old Testament for son or in its plural for children. And it is the exact word that is used about Esau and Jacob while they are still unborn. These sons or children are in the womb. The terminology of the Bible only points to the distinctive life of individual children within the womb. There is no differentiation before, between unborn babies and born babies in our Bible. So we have, from the very terminology of our Bibles, biblical evidence for the sanctity of human life. Number one, biblical terminology. Number two, and this is a, a very powerful argument that I'm going to present here, and I want you to know that it might be it might be the most powerful biblical argument once you realize what's happening here. It has to do with legal penalty. Legal penalty. You need to know that under Moses, God gave specific civil law based on moral law for Israel, for their culture and society. This is how I want you to live, the Lord says. Here are your rules. I'm telling you, you write it down, you tell the people, and this is how you are to live. And he gave them many different laws. And this is very interesting, and I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 21 with me. And here we see that God is giving specific instruction to Moses about a particular incident that could potentially take place and what the consequence should be if it happens. Alright? In Exodus chapter 21, I want you to see here that God, first of all, gives instruction to Moses to teach the people what to do if there is a premature birth without harm. A premature birth without harm. Here it is. It's interesting. Verse 22. Let's begin with 22. When men strive together, okay, they're fighting. Two men strive together. Two men get in a fight. And they hit a pregnant woman so that her children, there's that word, banum, the plural of ben, that we just talked about in the Hebrew. Children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. All right, so you got the scene? We don't know the scenario. Could happen in any kind of uh, context domestic or public or uh, some kind of an event and somehow two men start to fight and they accidentally knock against or hit or knock down a pregnant woman and it puts her into labor it induces labor and she is forced into premature labor and she has her baby or babies and they are born on the site right there as a result of the damage that they did to her. But nothing is wrong. Everything turns out okay. You can imagine what an intense scenario that would be. Oh, she's going into labor and all of a sudden these guys who had gotten out of control are guilty now of hurting an innocent bystander. And not only that, these babies, the baby is going to be born. And the law is that Moses instates through God is that the husband can go to the judge and he can make an appeal for a penalty and the judge will enforce it, but that's it. 
Everything turned out okay. The babies live. No one is harmed. The mother heals. Everything is fine. So you have premature birth without harm. Pay the penalty. All is well. Ne the next verse, though, look what it says. It says in verse 23, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. We sometimes have heard that concept called the Code of Hammurabi. So whatever happens, whatever you do to me and damage me, I get to do that damage back to you. It's an equal payment. And what we have here on letter B is premature birth with harm is what's being described. Premature birth with harm. So same scenario, pregnant woman, pregnant mother, two men begin to skirmish. It gets out of control. Somehow they knock her down or hit her accidentally or she is tripped up in such a way that she goes into induced labor prematurely. She has the baby and the baby dies. And God says, kill the men. Whatever happens to the babies, that's what you do to them. If they're born blind, you poke out their eyes. Okay? And so clearly we have capital punishment here for the unintentional premature birth that is accidentally induced, but it brings death. You die. Now, God gave another civil law that is very interesting. And this is in Numbers chapter 35, but you don't have to turn there. You can look at it later. He actually references it a little bit here in chapter 21 of Exodus right in front of us. Just to save time, we'll stay here in verse 12 where he says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies, he shall be put to death. So if you kill somebody, you get the death penalty. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will, I will appoint for you a place which he may flee. This place which he may flee for refuge is a city of refuge or a sanctuary city. That's what Numbers 35 is giving an instruction about. In Numbers chapter 35, if you take time to read it, God says to Moses, okay, here's the deal. When you move into the land and you have set up your country, I want, I think it's six cities, he says. There are six cities, and they are going to be identified as cities of refuge or sanctuary cities. Now, we've been hearing that in the news a lot lately, and it's not a new concept. God provided it. In this situation, he provided it for the unintentional homicide that might take place in the community. And before the, man, uh, before the man's friends or brothers could kill him in retaliation for the murder that he accidentally committed. Okay, so if he did it intentionally, he is supposed to receive the death penalty. No ifs, ands, or buts. But sanctuary cities were set up, letter C, for the provision of accidental death. For the provision of accidental death. So the way it would work is, if you're working, or you're driving a team of oxen back then, or something, and somehow, something your action or behavior causes another person to be killed, but you didn't mean it. You didn't mean it at all. You know, a piece of equipment broke, or you swung your pickaxe the wrong direction and didn't realize the guy was standing right behind you, and you, you sunk the backside of your pickaxe right through his noggin, and there he is dead, and all of a sudden you killed the guy, and you had no idea, you were just picking rock, and now your buddy's dead. And so, and so that you did not have to be afraid of his 
group of people killing you, you could run to the sanctuary city, the city of refuge, and there you could make an appeal, an investigation could be launched, you could get a hearing before a judge, and you could be exonerated from this accidental death. Now let's go to the notes and let me just read what I wrote here. Conclusion. In God's law for Israel, he placed a higher value on protecting the life of a pregnant woman and her unborn children than the life of anyone else in Israelite society. Clearly, God treats the death of an unborn child or its mother with more severity, not less. Why do I say that? More severity, not less. Because look, in the instruction of accidental death of a baby induced by the men fighting, it was life for life. They didn't get to run to the sanctuary city. If they knocked down a pregnant woman and those babies were born prematurely, even though it was accidental, they were to die. They got the death penalty. But if you accidentally killed somebody, you could run and get a hearing. And you could have an investigation launched. God is placing, in my opinion, according to these laws, more value on the lives of the unborn than those of matured people. Note in our notes, this law applies to a case of accidental killing of an unborn baby. So the men who were fighting accidentally killed the baby. The logical conclusion is that if God considers this a serious crime, then how much more the intentional killing of unborn babies? Do you understand my logic? If God says you accidentally kill an unborn baby because of your irresponsible behavior, you can get the death penalty for that. How much more would God, seriously, would God take it when you intentionally snuff out the life, often in most heinous fashion, the life of an unborn baby? So I think we have an argument right there from Scripture. Not only does biblical terminology support the life of the unborn, Legal penalty supports it. But then you hear there's another thing that's going on in our culture. Letter three has to do with babies with special identity. Special identity. And this has to do with the advances in technology to where we now know and often can find out while the baby is still in the womb and unborn that there is the potential or the existence even of birth defect. That baby is going to have something out of the norm wrong. I call them special. They're really special. I personally believe that parents who have a special child are special parents. And you break my heart. I love you for it. But in our culture, we have this question. Who gets to decide the value of an individual who is special? Who gets to decide? The government? The state? Federal government? Parents? Doctors? You see, one advance of modern technology is the ability of the medical world to discern the potential for birth defects. Should parents have the right to abort such children, saving themselves a life of difficulty and constant care? You think, I do not want to be hampered down with this burden. Or what about the child having to live trapped with these limitations, even suffering because they are special. Let me remind you of three biblical concepts. Letter A, 
God creates everyone uniquely. That's Psalm 139. It's a very familiar passage, but why don't we turn there very quickly. Psalm 139, and let's just remind ourselves of how David, speaking in euphemism and figure of speech, talks about how marvelously he was formed in the womb. Verse 13, Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. I think that means genetic code. That's genetic code. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You knitted me together. Listen, I want to say something else. Someday we have to have a sermon on this. You know there's only X chromosomes and Y chromosomes. And God only puts them together in one of two ways. You are either born boy or you're either born girl. That is it. Don't ever be confused that there is more than two genders. Okay? And God knits you together that way. And there you are. And he says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I can't even imagine how it happens. How can an entity in a male and an entity in a female that by themselves are lifeless, come together and be living and be so complex immediately. It's a marvel and it's a mystery and it's God's creative power. And I want to tell you, there are, there are no two people who are alike. Nobody has the same genetic code. Nobody has the same DNA. Nobody has the same set of chromosomes. And God puts you together in the womb like that. And the entire genetic code is placed in the womb. And formed in the womb. And so God uniquely creates this person. And now we live in a sin-cursed world. And we live in a world where the creation is groaning under the impact of sin. And its residual effect... And so it is possible for a doctor to come to you and say, this child who is uniquely forming within you has only a little bit of a brain stub. Its brain's not going to form. Its heart has holes in it. We need to do open heart surgery while it's still in the womb. What an incredible thing. It's going to be blind. It's going to be deaf. They might look at you and say, you know, we just recommend that you abort this child. A very common procedure is is where they check the fluid and they find out there's an extra chromosome. There's a test and it could be a Down syndrome baby. And there's a great movement to say, you know what, let's just, let's just terminate this one and try again. Better luck next time. The whole world will be better off. I should not have to justify my existence, Frank says. I encourage you to look it up. All you have to do is Google his name. It's on YouTube. It's easy to find. It's a powerful speech. It lasts about seven minutes. So as we look at God's Word, we recognize, number three, letter A, that God creates everyone uniquely. We are formed uniquely in the womb. Letter B, God is sovereign over each of us in design. He is sovereign over each of us in design. You don't have to turn there, but this is Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Let me tell you what's happening. You'll remember this in your Bible stories from Sunday school. God has called Moses in the wilderness at the burning bush to be his leader, to take Israel out of Egypt. And Moses begins to argue with God and says, I can't do it. And you remember what he said? He said, I can't do it because I can't talk. 
I'm slow of speech. We don't know if Moses actually had a speech impediment or if he was just making up lame excuses. And so God responds to Moses, and this is what he says in Exodus chapter 4, 11. And then the Lord said to him, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Wow. Wow. And you mean to say that God would induce suffering? No, but God works within a system that is under the curse of sin where suffering exists and He allows it to His glory. God's sovereign over each of us in design, even the deaf and the mute. Let her see, God uses special people in special ways. Surely, Frank Stevens is an example of that. There are many testimonies that could be told at this point on how God takes special people if He brings them into your home and into your life and how He highly impacts your world with that all for His good and His glory. One of the best biblical illustrations of that is in John's Gospel in chapter 9. And that's where the man who was born blind is alongside the road. And Jesus and his disciples are coming through. And um, the first questions the disciples ask this guy, and this guy's in his early 40s evidently. He's a mature adult man and he's been blind all of his life. And when the disciples see him right before Jesus restores sight to him or gives him sight for the first time in his life, the disciples have this deep ethical question. Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In their mind, somebody had to do something wrong, and the consequence of their sin was that this guy had to be punished. Jesus looks at him, and you can read this passage, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. The man, Jesus, looks at the disciples and said, No, nobody. He said, "He He was created here by design, and here this day that I might display the glory of my Father. He was put there on the side of that road for 40 years blind so that the entire community knew that there was a blind man who was beyond a shadow of a doubt blind. There was no chicanery or smoke and mirrors, but that Jesus would instantly make him see to demonstrate his glory and his power. I don't know how God will do it in your life or the life of your child who is special, but he will display his glory and his power. And he will use that. To terminate that is to turn and twist God's plan of blessing for our lives. Let's quickly wrap up. I wrote these out mostly. I knew I would be about out of time now, and I just wanted to make two more arguments. These are just five arguments, biblical and logical, that I am presenting to you to show you that we must be pro-life. There is no other choice. There are at least 30 more arguments. One of the things that we hear in the pro-death movement is that you cannot tell a woman what she should be allowed to do with her own body. And I have news for you. The baby in your womb is not your body. It's a different body. So we have, from medical evidence, the uniqueness of biology. Medical evidence, letter A, shows that it is a fact that DNA, the DNA of a child, 
and mother are absolutely distinct. The baby is not a part of the mother's body. Every cell of its body is different. And you say, oh, but it can't live without its mother. It's absolutely dependent. Well, that's exactly right. That unborn baby is absolutely dependent on its mother. But so is a one-year-old and a three-year-old and a seventh grader and a husband. <laughs> Dependency has nothing to do with it. Dependency is an absolutely erroneous argument. However, that is what euthanasia is built upon. And, and, it, and I'm telling you, if you are in God's camp and you have a biblical worldview, you do not have to be embarrassed of the logical sequence of thought that supports pro-life. If you're in the pro-death camp and you're outside of a biblical worldview and you maintain a position for abortion, you have lots to worry about the inconsistencies of your logic. It doesn't hold water. There's only one position and it's pro-life. Medical technology, the high-definition imaging of ultrasound, is a powerful tool that is turning the public sentiment against abortion. And I believe that in my lifetime, we will see abortion just about obliterated. Maybe not completely in the case of rape or incest, but I'm telling you, even today, there are people who are moving in Congress, trying to pass bills that is shrinking the window where abortion can take place. And I think it's going to have a great impact. And I praise God for a president who will sign that kind of bill. I praise God for a president who is not embarrassed or ashamed to put himself on a big jumbo screen in front of, million, uh, front of hundreds of thousands of people and, uh, for the record, stand in support of life. You can say what you want. I'm going to stand with that guy. It's about time... It's about time, 45 years, that a president will speak in favor of the life of the unborn. Go figure. How hard is that to do? It's not hard. And so I thank God for that. Abortion advocate William Salitin, writing in Slate Magazine, said, Slate Magazine is a very liberal magazine, a proponent of liberal positions politically. It's a political magazine. This guy said, Ultrasound has exposed the life in the womb to those who didn't want to see what abortion kills. The fetus is squirming, and so are we. I was starting to say uh, before I got on my rant that um, the movement to pass bills is to shrink the window of allowing legal abortion by basing it upon uh, some, some are brain waves, some are weak, some are heartbeat even. And I think that's somewhere, what, six or eight weeks when the heartbeat starts up. If that could happen, just think of the diminishing number of abortions that would be allowed. I wanted to point out also that there is an incredible toll that abortion has taken and is taking upon our society. There is societal tragedy associated with abortion. Let me just read, okay? As these notes go to print, this was 5 p.m. yesterday at my desk in the other hallway, here are the latest numbers on how many babies have been aborted. This is taken from the abortion clock. You see the website I looked at. Today in the USA, that was yesterday, January 20, 20 uh, I put 2017 on my notes, go figure that. 2018, today in the USA, 1,798 babies were aborted. That was by 5 p.m. yesterday, for that day. This year in the USA, 50,002. 
Since Roe v. Wade in the USA, 60,119,974. Clearly, these numbers represent an incalculable loss to the nation and world from the deaths of more than 1 million babies per year. Some of those would now be 45 years old and 44 years old and 43 years old and so on down to nearly 1 million who would be in their fir very first year of life. Many would now be doctors and engineers and business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, electricians and poets, carpenters, musicians, sports figures, political leaders and so forth. Many of them would be mothers taking care of their own children and fathers helping to raise their children they would be contributing to society in all areas of life but they never had the chance to be born and you say but they could be crackheads and in prison and I say shame on you you don't know you don't know in conclusion today as we wrap up number one Young people and adults alike, can I call you to this position to never, 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 ever be embarrassed to be pro-life? There is no other choice. Number two, can we ask God today as a church to break our heart? Will you ask God as an individual to break your heart? I'm a little bit embarrassed that I can preach on this stuff and I can look at these kinds of statistics and never shed a tear. What kind of hard-hearted cuss am I? God, would you break my heart? I think that's a legitimate prayer for God's people. Number three, would that God would groom a heart of love for those who do not know Christ and his word. I am not saying for a second that we should not have a righteous rage over the reality of abortion, but I am saying for the young mothers, teenagers and college students who have been indoctrinated and taught since kindergarten that they are the result of some kind of a big bang and that their ancestors crawled out of a pond of scum, sprouted legs, then arms and a long tail, swang from trees, ended up walking uprightly, figuring out how to start fire and cook food. Is it any wonder that you would kill a, an unborn baby if you believe in the evolutionary process? After all, it's all about survival of the fittest. The two go hand in hand. You would not have an abortion industry if you did not have an evolutionary theory proponent as fact in our schools. Don't kid yourself. And so when we encounter people who do not have a biblical worldview and they do not know Christ, would it only be true that we would love them and that we would do all we can to share Christ with them and the love of Christ with them and that they would look at us and they would know that we are Christ followers by our love. There is a time for righteous anger. It is not when you are talking to a young person who has had or is considering to have an abortion. And so may God give us that grace that we need to share his love and his word with these precious, confused young people. Finally, you do know, don't you, that abortion is not the unpardonable sin. Don't you know that? 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
1 Peter talks about His precious blood that cleanses us from sin. We cannot undo the past. We cannot undo our bad decision making. We only run to the cross. Amen? We run to the cross because there's that life-giving fountain of His blood that cleanses us, that washes us. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners go there and plunge within. Praise God. Praise God. If you are eaten with guilt and discouragement and even despair over your decisions of the past, can you just stop it right now and put it at the foot of the cross and let the righteousness of Christ overwhelm you? And then look forward someday to all of eternity with that baby. You can't undo it. You can only allow God to forgive you. You come to the cross, you admit your sinfulness, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and you let his blood cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Wouldn't it be wonderful if in the first term of President Donald Trump, abortions become almost obsolete at least? At least. Let's pray to that end. Let's stand, please. And so, Father, we live in a convoluted world. We live in a world that is complex in its uh, darkness, in its secularism, its rational and naturalism. It's, it's really hard for us to even sort it out. And then with the advances of technology and the ethical dilemmas that are coming in with the ability to touch chromosomes and DNA and to change people in the womb and just the entire world in which we live is not easy. And so would you give us just a, a simple and a clear conscience and a confidence that our Bibles are true and that the unborn are a baby and a child and a son and children just like the born. And may there be no confusion in our young people and may the next generation stand with courage and confidence. For life, there is no other choice. Thank you for this time together. Cover us, watch over us, protect us as a community, I pray, as we go. And thank you most of all for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.